Um, one of the challenges about today as we come to the Word is that um, this is very familiar. Um, it's uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It's like uh, John three sixteen. You You probably... Uh, know it, you could probably memorize it, you might, you probably could explain it to your friends, your non-Christian friends, and so the challenge we have is to be able to hear it afresh and have eyes to hear uh, something that's familiar. If, if we talk about something, a novel, the, you know, the, the, the kicking out of the Philistines and murder, or we talk about hot cultural issues, we're on the edge of our seat, and we talk about things we know, we tend to assume, we tend to close down, and so I'm going to pray and then I'm going to also uh, ask the Lord to help us to hear afresh. I'm going to ask you to be attuned today to the Lord and to his word. Uh, we're also going to pray for a few needs that we have uh, in the church. So let's go to the Lord now. Uh, well, actually, let me read the passage, and then, um, and then I'll pray. Here are these words. Uh, this is God's word to us, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no, no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is powerful, even in its familiarity, Lord. It, these words bring life. They bring conviction. They bring healing. And certainly today they bring comfort to us. As we talk about your grace and your goodness to us, would you give us ears to hear? God, would our hearts be opened to your word? We want to pray for uh, Lauren Dobson today, Frazier, uh, and Christy's, Christy's sister-in-law and her brother Bo and the baby born at 28 weeks. At women and children, we pray for Lauren and her body, her blood pressure, Lord, to stabilize, for health for her, for health for that very small baby in the NICU. God, would your hands uh, be upon that child? Would you give doctors wisdom in the NICU and give them the care that is needed? Lord, be close to them and that family and let us encourage and support them in any way we can. We pray for Miss Dorothy as she's grieving the loss of a family member and the challenges that she's facing, Lord, would you be close to her even this day? Reminded of Stephen English, a member of Westminster that just lost his brother and is grieving, Lord, be near to him. Draw close in this hour, we pray. Many other needs, financial, relational, familial, God, vocational, uh, all over the map. We have need, we have struggle, we have ways that we are desperate. Lord, and we believe that you will show up in your way uh, for the good of your people and for your glory. We ask now that you would show up, for we certainly know we need to hear from you. We can't conjure up enough, can't make it through. Uh, we can't uh, manipulate you. Lord, we need your grace. We need your word to come. And God, would it fall on good soil today as we hear and preach your word. We pray this in your name. Amen. 
uh, Ephesians 2, uh, 8, and 8 through 10 familiar words to us. Uh, who knew uh, the initials FDU? Who knows them now? Who knew them before Friday? Anyone know them before Friday? Fairly Dickinson, Michael Knapp, our resident basketball coach, expert scholar. I, I did not know this was a university, uh, Fairly Dickinson University. It's in Hackensack, New Jersey. Of course, y'all, y'all knew that. Uh, we all passed through there, right? No, uh, they, uh, but after Friday night, that name is somewhat familiar. They uh, became the only second uh, 16 seed, which is the lowest seed in the NCAA tournament, to beat a one seed, Purdue, uh, in the first round. It is the unlikeliest victory. Uh, at one point, or most of the year, actually, Purdue was ranked number one in the country. At one point, Fairleigh Dickinson University was ranked 298th in the country. Did you hear that? 298. I didn't know they ranked in the high. Apparently they do. Um, they were 20 and 15 on the year, a little above 500. They lost to a bunch of teams in that 15 that you and I have never heard of. Maybe Michael has. We have not. And yet, in the March Madness tournament, first game, the unlikeliest victories happen. Now, I imagine when you come to campus in the fall, next year, Fairleigh Dickinson University in Hackensack, New Jersey, you're going to come in and there's going to be a banner, right? There's going to be a sign with the score. There's going to be a picture of storming the field, uh, court and players and, and cheerleaders were jumping around. And that picture is going to be blown up when you enter their arena. That will be marked. The victory will be marked uh, in all over that campus, all over that arena, for that great moment. Do you doubt that? That will happen for sure. Last week, there's a connection. Last week, we said that uh, Ryan last week took us to the early part of chapter 2. The week before, I said that the uh, thesis, I believe, of Ephesians is at the end of chapter 1. And at the end of chapter 1, it is the literally unlikeliest victory of all time. God had sent his son Jesus to come. And man, us, we got our hands on God, and we did what our hearts wanted to do. We finally got him in our grips, and we killed him, right? Jew, Gentile, the Romans, and we killed him. And yet, in the unlikeliest manner, the greatest victory, the power of God displayed, chapter 1, verse 20, the power of God displayed that he worked in Christ, when he raised, that's God the Father, raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but the age to come. Jesus now sits, conquering victorious with his enemies, the, the cosmic powers, as a footstool propping him up. And he put all things under his feet and gave all of that to us, the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus defeated the greatest death, that is, uh, the, the, the greatest enemy, that is death. He overcame it, being resurrected, and then took all the cosmic powers and forces and used them as the Ottoman, his footstool underneath him, and empowers us, the church, with all the power that raised Christ and gives it to us, 
that we might carry on the mission of God in the world. How do we know? Um, how do we know this victory? We, we read it in Scripture. But chapter 2 of Ephesians is, is like coming into the arena, and it is the trophy room of God. Chapter 2 is the trophy room. It's the banner that displays the victory of God. It's the proof that Christ was resurrected, defeating death and hell and darkness. And the display, chapter 2, first part, 1 through 10, is about us. The second part, 11 through 22, shows that God took humanity that was fractured, hostile, two man, Jew and Gentile, hating each other, and he, in God, in Christ, breaks down the wall and unites a new man. But the first thing you see when you walk in, the first way we know that the victory of God over darkness is cry in Christ is the salvation of man. That's the thing that's on display. The grace of God has rewired the world in Christ, bringing new life and resurrection. Ryan, uh, spoke last week in verses 1 to 7 about the depth of our depravity. Dead in our trespasses and sin, following the course of this world, the spirit of the power of the air. He consumed us, enslaved us. We were by nature children of wrath. It says we were dead in our sins. It didn't say we were sick. It didn't say we were having a bad day. It didn't say we needed a little help. We were dead, lifeless. There was no pulse. We, we did the compressions, you know, the AED. We tried to get some life, and we were dead. It was over, and the unlikeliest victory of all, we've been raised to life within to new life in Christ. Ryan told us that last week. It says, verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised with him. And then he says it in our verse today, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. How do we know the victory of God? How do we know Jesus is raised from the dead because we've been raised internally to new life. And one day our bodies, though they waste away now, will be raised again to newness of life. The, the trophy room, the showcase, is us, the people of God, that have new life in the spirit within us. Like the dry bones that Kim read about in Ezekiel. He's brought resurrection life in us, the grace of God. That is good news for us. We should be excited about that. He basically explains what grace is. He says, it is a gift of God. And if you receive a gift, you should want to, you should take it. If you're given a gift, if I offer you a million dollars, you should be skeptical at first because you know I don't have that kind of money. But then you should say, sure, I'll take it. Give it to me, right? And yeah, we're offered the grace of God, the gift of God, and we are resistant. We resist grace. And that's what I want to talk about today. Something very familiar. I want to talk about we're given this grace, it's a gift, and yet we resist it. What's our problem with grace? What's our problem with grace? First thing I want us to see is uh, we don't think we need it. 
Verse 8 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Now, we have a thing in theology. We talk about common grace. Common grace is that grace given to everyone. If you are uh, a, a human, if you're alive, you experience common grace. Common grace is that the, the, the rain comes and the sun shines on the just and the unjust. It's that you can have tonight, whether you're a Christian or not, you can have a great meal and you can enjoy it. You can enjoy pleasure of this life. Those are common graces that all humanity experiences. But in the, the trophy case, the showroom, it's not common grace that he's talking about. It's saving grace. He comes in, and it's us, the people of God, who were dead and now have been resurrected. And that's what we see. See the victory? Resurrected. Saving saving grace. I have a pastor who tells a story about um, being asked by a woman in his congregation, and sometimes, uh, particularly with uh Older, older congregations, pastors would get asked to go visit family members in the, in the hospital or at hospice in the last days. And, and this lady did that to, to the pastor. And uh, she was a faithful churchgoer, a Christian, but her husband was not, never been to church. Um, but he was at the end of his life. And so the pastor went and uh, he did. He went, and went to meet, meet the man and sat by his bed and talked to him for a little bit. And the, the man was still cognizant. He was still with it. And so the pastor said, well, this is, this is the time. I'm just going to shoot him straight. And he said, uh, sir, where, uh, where are you with the Lord? Are, are, you right, are you right with God? And the man says, uh, callously replies, I, I didn't know we were at odds. <laughs> I didn't know God and I had a problem. I didn't know there was an issue. Now, maybe you and I have been around church enough to know that there, there's an issue, right? We, we are at odds with God. Ryan uh, read last week in the most uh, clear terms from the Apostle Paul that we are not right with God. We are at odds. And yet, many of us don't understand the fundamental need. It says we're saved by grace. We need grace because we have a big problem. The need is far deeper than we thought. We need saving we need rescue. The fundamental message of Christianity, it's a rescue mission. God has been on a mission to save us. It's not very popular today. We don't like to talk about that because that means if we need to be saved, it means we have a problem. We don't like to acknowledge that. We all know the world has tra difficulties and trauma and struggles. We all know that we are physically, uh, some of you are in your prime, but we're wasting away. We're growing old, our knees hurt, we lose our hair, you know, body starts breaking down. We know that physically, we see that in the world, but what's happening to our bodies has already happened to our soul. We are dead. We need saving, we need rescue. Some of us have not acknowledged that and named that. Salvation is more than forgiveness. It's deliverance from death and slavery and the wrath of God. Jesus came to save we cannot lose that message problem is grace we don't know that we need it this is from our good friend mark ryan who's come before once a culture has moved from christendom to consumerism the church can't assume her message of grace is understood so long as the people understand their main calling in life is to be is to entertainment enhancement expression our message of sin will fall on deaf ears so long as people think their main problem is simply a lack of resources or education or education or comfort, Jesus' saving work on the cross will seem 
an irrelevant abstraction to us. Um, the work of Christ will mean very little to us if we don't know the depth of the problem. We all look like nice people in here, but at our heart, we need rescue. That's what grace of God is. It's rescue to us. Maybe not lose that message. Um, that's the first problem. We don't know we need it. The second problem we have with grace is that grace is, uh, is disruptive. Grace is disruptive. And if it's not disruptive, we don't understand it. Um, if, if grace, if we are comfortable with grace, we don't understand the nature of grace. Maybe you're in this room and you think, yeah, I know I need grace. I'm at church, right? I mean, most of us here, okay, I have some sense of guilt, of shame. Uh, there's an awareness. I need a connection with God. So I need, uh, I need something of grace. But, um, but we don't know how radically we need grace. We don't know how desperate we are of grace. Maybe we think, yeah, sure, I need grace. Um, but partly, I could be right with God. There's something in me that recommends me to God. The reason that we are good people in here and there are not so good people out there is something to do with us, our heart, our morality, the good intentions. We mean well. And we see grace as sort of a divine, you know, self-help program. You know, you just need a little nudge, you need a little direction. Um, and we view grace that way. But grace is disruptive. I remember as a kid seeing that, that church sign that said, um, was it God helps those who help themselves? You heard that? Remember seeing it on this, this country sign? God helps those who, sell, who help themselves. Uh, no, God helps dead people. That's who God helps. God helps us and our dead and our sin. That's who God helps. If he were later on, later on us uh, to help ourselves, we would have no hope in this world. But God comes to broken, dead people like us. We view it grace. Uh, church people view grace often contractually. We do our part, then God is obligated to do his part. We sign the line, it works that way. And so when it doesn't go well, when life brings trials and tragedy, we're bitter. We're resentful. All the things I've done for you, all the years I've been in that church, all the money I've given, and this is what happens. Do you hear that? That comes from the heart of the most religious people. We don't understand the nature of grace. The beautiful thing is Ryan preached last week, Paul does not whitewash humanity. He doesn't fudge the numbers. He tells it like it is. We are enslaved. We are dead. He means it. Which means we get the freedom to cut off all the superficial efforts of playing religion and playing spiritual. We don't have to play the platitude game, the Christian little phrases. We don't have to confess our sin in some generic category so no one might not really know what's going on in our heart. We can actually name and be honest because it's far worse than we think it is. See, grace flows downhill. When we feel like we're uphill, we feel like we're doing well, we need a little grace. But when we realize, you know, we're at the bottom, we need, we need a lot of grace. A lot of grace. Knowing that, uh, 
prevents us from dabbling in Jesus, you know, doing a little bit, doing the social, cultural, Christian thing. When we engage real Jesus, he says, it's nothing of your doing. We need lots of grace. But grace uh, is hard to hear because says, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Um, we, we love to boast. <laughs> we're professional boasters. We love to hold up, even if, we're, even if we're quiet, even if we don't post it all over Instagram, we boast in our own hearts. We know we stand out over those people. We know we stand out over one another. You know why we do? Because we say things like, can you believe they did that? Oh, I would never do that, right? Anybody ever said that? Who says that the most? Religious people like that. Can you believe that? Oh, my gosh. The only thing that we can say with confidence is by the grace of God, I haven't done that. Right? In fact, we've been wanting to do that all the time, constantly in our heart, every day. <laughs> Most of the time, we haven't done that, whatever that bad thing is, because we haven't been caught or we haven't had the opportunity to do that. If we had the power and the influence of some of the celebrities that do that stuff that we would never do, we would probably do the very same thing. But the grace of God, we haven't done that. By grace... Your heart longs to do that. If you say, oh, come on, pastor, that's a little much. Remember Jesus' words? If you have anger in your heart towards one another, you've committed murder. You're a murderer. What about lust in your heart? You've committed adultery. I can't believe they would do that. Lust in your heart and adultery. had a uh, coffee the other day with my uh, Catholic uh, priest friend. We meet pretty regularly and have a good conversation. And we got into the, the conversation of uh, confession and penance and all the things. And he says, well, uh, somewhere along the line, he says, um, well, you know, everybody knows that, uh, that there are degrees of sin, that some sins are worse than other sins. <laughs> so we got in this interesting conversation about that. And he's right in the sense of consequences of sins are different, right? There are differences. There are differences horizontally and the impact of those things. But in a real sense, no, there's no distinction because our offense is not against one another primarily. Our offense is against whom? It's against the Lord, right? It's treason against God. And so our hearts, whether there's a spectrum of what we've committed and what we haven't committed, all of us have committed treason, offenses against the holy God who made us and names us, we, are, we can't boast. He stripped away our righteousness, our morality, any way that we can look better or commend or recommend ourselves. That's why coming to Christ is dying to self. There is no more me or you. It is all of grace. And we don't like that. We don't like that. Um, we do like it. We read it in Scripture and we read that the tax collector that can't even approach the throne but just lays down and says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. He's in. And the Pharisee, the religious leader of the day, 
to praise. Lord, thank you that I'm not like other men, right? I'm not like these evil people. The Pharisees out, the tax collectors in. We like it in Scripture. <laughs> we don't like it when it's true of our own heart, right? We like it when it's true of our own hearts. We don't like that you can be a, a wealthy American uh, in a church and find yourself out, and that you could be someone that's in uh, the poorest of places, uh, but surrender the heart, receive the grace of God, and be in. Don't like that. It's disruptive. It's not disruptive. It should be. When we're stripped of the equation, we have this thing called faith. By grace, you have been saved through faith. Faith is simply the recognition that everything is about grace. It's all of grace. We got nothing left of ourselves. We're desperate. And so we receive it. Faith is. And it takes multiple ways. The same grace we receive, we're supposed to give to other people. Seven times, should we give it to them? No, 70 times seven. We have to do that. Oh, that's disruptive. I don't want to. <laughs> I've reached the limit. That's faith played out when we receive the grace of God for us. Um, have you wrestled with how badly you need grace? Maybe when you, if you've been a Christian a long time, maybe you can remember when you first became a Christian and that, that, that phrase was radical to you. And then now it's familiar still need it. Finally, we resist it. Uh, some don't think we need it. Why do we need saving? What have I done? <laughs> All of us don't understand the depth of it. We uh, have trivialized it. We don't know how disruptive it is. But finally, uh, we resist grace because we don't understand its power. Verse 10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's a story of Reverend Paul Gibson. He was the retired principal of Ridley Hall at Cambridge. And uh, he came to his retirement ceremony and, and uh, they, uh, they unveiled this portrait of him. And, uh, and, and he was, looked at it and he was so struck by, by how well it was done and the artist's work that he, he said these famous lines. He said, in the future... People will not ask, who is this man? But they will ask, who is this artist? Who painted this thing? This is amazing. Forget who the old guy is. Who's the artist? The beauty uh, of the portrait will cause us to ask about the artist. The beauty of a life that gets grace, that understands our need, is so overwhelmed with gratitude and goodness, and extending grace, and hope, and life, and joy, that people will look and say, who's the artist? Who's the creator? How'd you get there? I live in the same broken world you do. I experience the same tragedy, and trials, and difficulty. How do you have joy? How do you have life? How do you have hope, right? If you didn't think it was about grace, verse 10 affirms it. We are his workmanship. The word means we are his masterpiece. He's the artist, created, same word used, creation, 
created in Christ Jesus. Salvation by grace is new creation. It's not uh, we came to Christ by faith and then we, we New Year's resolution, we turned over a new leaf. You know, we're going to start and do better. No, we were redone. It took out all the wiring and it redid it. Took out our heart, he gave us a new one. We were dead, dry bones, new life by grace. People look at your life, they say, no, I don't see the man. I see who, who made that man? Who made that woman? How can they endure that? Isn't that what you feel when you read some of the missionary biographies? You hear the stories of the saints, and, and, the, and you're like, how in the world, right? You marvel, and you're not just stuck on them. You're like, what kind of God can allow, can sustain someone through something like that? I want to know who that person is. I want to know who that God is. I want to know who that creator is. And the beauty of God is that in his victory over death, in his display of grace to the world, he strips us of pride. He strips us of trying to earn. And when we're dead and earning, he recommissions us to the task of doing good works. Which was the problem to begin with, because we were trying to do good works to earn God's favor. And he stripped it and said, no, none of you, it's all of grace. Oh yeah, now go and do good works. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? We couldn't come up with that. It's the work of God. I ran across this quote this week. Uh, Richard Dawkins, some of you know him. He's a pretty well-known, you know, kind of atheist. He wrote a lot a few years ago. But he, he hits the nail on the head in terms of uh, how, uh, how most Christians, and certainly him as an atheist, thinks about our morality as Christians. He says this, do you really mean to tell me that the only reason you try to be good is to gain God's approval and reward or to avoid his disapproval and punishment? That's not morality. That's just sucking up. That's apple polishing. It's looking over your shoulder at the surveillance camera in the sky or the still small wiretap inside your head monitoring your every move. That's not morality, he says. That's how most of us think about it. That's how certainly the non-Christian world thinks about our good works. We're trying to, to suck up, trying to even the scales. But that is not what grace does. When grace enters in and you know your need of grace, and you know your sin, and you know your brokenness, and you know your heart would do those things given the right occasion and opportunity, yet by the grace of God, it overflows in gratitude and good works, and love. If You always hear hypothetically, well, if you believe it's all of grace, then you'll do nothing. You'll be passive, right? You won't do anything. Paul addresses that very clearly in Romans. He addresses it here as well. Works are always part of the equation. They just don't merit God's favor. They flow as a result of being overwhelmed with the goodness of God and the grace of God. And the result is good works. God's prepared them. God wants us to do good works. God wants us to love and serve our neighbor. He wants us to do good things. He wants us to be creative. He wants us to strive. He wants us to produce. He wants us to love and labor. But not out of have to, but out of get to. But out of his goodness that flows to us, in us, and through us, 
into the world. Grace demands it. I hope you uh, are aware of your need. I hope you continue to ask God to show your need. I hope you wrestle with this disruptive doctrine of grace. I hope it compels you to give your life and lay your life down for something good. It's, uh, it's weird when you start to get it. It's uncomfortable. I'll finish with a reminder of the prodigal son story. I, 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 uh, you know, the prodigal asks for his inheritance, and he, Luke 15, and he asks it, which is disrespectful, and he takes it, and he goes to the far country, and he, he spends it on loose living, it says, and he's, 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 he's uh, eating uh, the slop the pigs eat, and he's, he finally, he finally rations, uh, you know, in, in his mind, uh, some kind of religious scheme where he can uh, earn some favor back. I'll go back to my dad's house, and I'll tell him I did all this. Can I at least work as a hired hand? He's got this negotiation plan. He's going to kind of work himself back in favor. And the father, uh, picture of God, sees him far off and does the unthinkable, you know, pulls up his, his robe and runs, you know, and, and sprints after him and and, and he's got this whole spiel he's going to give, and he's going to get back, and, and he, the father just hugs him and kisses him and kisses him and gets the robe and says, let's party and let's have the fatted calf and, and all, and, and, and just this amazing picture of grace. And I always wonder, like, what was the party like, like for the prodigal? It's kind of embarrassing a little bit, like, man, like, you know what I did? Like, I was with prostitutes like two days ago. I was eating with pigs. All this is for me? It's kind of embarrassing. You're kind of ashamed. Like, do they really know? Do they really know what I've done? He's throwing this party, and then you realize, yeah, he knows, and he cares. And he still said, let's throw the party. Let's celebrate. God knows your deepest, worst, darkest thoughts. And he still says, let's party. Let's come to the table. I've prepared it for you. Come, let's feast, let's celebrate. But there's a tension. If you don't embrace the tension, the awkwardness of grace, you haven't wrestled with grace. This is cheat. This cost the Son of God his everything, right? His life for us. But the unlikeliest victory. The one no, nobody saw coming. The disciples were in despair on Saturday. And then on Sunday, Jesus rose from the dead, defeating the cosmic forces, sitting them under his feet, triumphing over it, and then gives grace to us that we might move into the world. May we know grace, may we live it, and may we share the hope of grace with the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the radical nature of grace that is undoing. And Father, if it hasn't undone us, would it? Would you do that even now? Coming to this table is a bit embarrassing. Should I be here? Should I come? Is it okay? You sure? You know what it's like driving to church today? What I did, my thoughts, my actions. Yet you say, come, repent, believe. By faith, take on this goodness that is ours freely. Oh God, thank you for this good news. May we embrace it by faith. Amen.